0: Hello and welcome to the BC Messenger podcast. It's October 2023. This is season two, episode three of the BC Messenger. Real science, real Bible, real history, and real world. And we're glad you're here. Last month we talked about manna. We introduced the topic of manna and that was part one. And today we have part two. of the topic of manna. I am glad to be here with my beautiful wife, Jennifer, and the two of us host this podcast every month. And today I want to begin with a quote. If you get our show notes, you'll see the quote right at the top of the page. And the quote is this, the day you plant the seed is not the day you reap the harvest.
1: The day you plant the seed. Yes, it takes a visionary
0: to be
1: planting and putting those seeds in the ground and foreseeing you know, that harvest that's coming down the road.
0: Yep. We planted a garden this year, as many of you may have done as well, and we have been reaping the harvest for quite a few weeks now. We planted way too many tomatoes in yes. our garden this year, and we have been getting the most beautiful, gorgeous tomatoes We've used all that we can. We, <laughs> we have made a lot of BLTs, and oh, I made a tomato pie.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: If you've never had a tomato pie, let me challenge you, especially from the South. Mm-hmm. You, <laughs> I we found this recipe online. How do we get into this? We, we found this recipe <laughs> online, and it's it, it was really good. And you may think tomato pie. Go Google it. If Find you're from the is, South, you, you'll, enjoy you'll
1: appreciate the it, concept right away. Uh, that's right. But Steve did make a delicious tomato pie. We have cut up a lot of tomatoes, put them in the freezer to make yep. soups and chilies for the winter. So, yes, we've had an abundant tomato harvest. We're also having a pumpkin harvest. Yes, we are. Our uh, One of our sons grew a whole bunch of pumpkins of different varieties this year and has been selling them here locally. So that's been nice. In fact, in the show notes, there is a picture of his very that's right. Fr- First harvest of his pumpkins this year.
0: But you know, when we put those seeds in the ground, Jen, when Sam, our son, put the pumpkin seeds in the ground and we put the little transplant tomatoes and the uh, plants in the ground, we didn't wake up the next day and have the fruit.
1: No. And in fact, Steve, um, one of your most often repeated phrases at the beginning of the gardening season is, I'm a little worried. <laughs> I'm a little worried that these tomato plants aren't going to do anything. I'm a little worried that uh, my pea plants and nothing's coming up.
0: No, I'm a little worried. I use that phrase, a little worried yeah a lot of things but it's
1: okay you know you do feel that way humanly you think that this isn't taking off this isn't going anywhere and with um the pumpkins with sam i i kept saying you know i think you need to plant some more of those big jack pumpkins i don't know if you have enough of those and sure enough now at harvest time we're realizing we probably could have used a lot more big jacks so you know the harvest time eventually the day comes yep but it's not the day you plant, and sometimes the uh, amount of time that goes by really can test our faith. Um, of course, we're making application here in the work at the Biblical Chronologist right. of uh, planting seeds of new ideas and new understandings of things and greater, greater light. But yet all of this is uh, looking down the road and trusting God for a great harvest in his time.
0: Right, and it takes a visionary. To see the potential of the seed being sown and to see down that road, especially when that seed comes in the form of new ideas, new understandings, when the harvest, as you said, seems like a a long time in coming.
1: Yeah, and it's really encouraging to look back through history because we can see examples of a lot of people who during the day and time they lived in, they worked tirelessly you know, against whatever the status quo of their day was that needed to be overcome. And eventually they saw the harvest in some cases, maybe they didn't see the harvest and it came after their Their death. death. But William Wilberforce is a guy like that, that I recently was reading up on a little bit. And man, I mean, just reading one summary of his life online is enough to inspire you for months to come. I mean, just incredible. Uh, Now, what did William Wilberforce do?
0: Well, you think, what do you think of first thing when you think of William Wilberforce? You think of slavery, slave trade? Um, He was
1: in the British Parliament. He uh, was converted to Christianity. And in that, he uh, became very passionate about the Christian worldview. And so, He then um, dedicated the rest of his life to uh, abolishing the slave trade, first of all, and then eventually uh, slavery as an institution. But decades went by before he saw the fruition. And his early efforts, he would be abandoned. He'd put a bill out in Congress and nobody would show up to vote. And he would be left with empty promises from the other politicians for support. And even in spite of even threats to his life Hmm. was putting forth this cause and pushing forward and to the eventual day of the harvest. And when Parliament voted finally to abolish the slave trade decades later, he bowed his head and just wept. And you can understand it when you when you read all that he went through.
0: Right. And, you know, to us today, I mean, something like slavery is just so obviously wrong, you know, I mean, to our culture today. and But yet, back in that day, that wasn't the case. I mean, it was the issue of the day. And we can get the mistaken idea that... Wilberforce walked into Congress one day and said, guys, we need to abolish the slave trade, right? I mean, everybody agrees, right? Duh. Yeah,
1: good idea. Let's oh, do yeah, it. yeah, right. <laughs>
0: right. Why haven't we thought of that? No, um, wasn't popular, wasn't going to get votes for these guys, and um, and he had to fight. And he, he
1: planted seeds for a long time, yep. even at great personal cost. Yep. But praise the Lord, you know, for the victories that he was able to see. Was it worth
0: it? I mean, lives saved and people helped. So much
1: suffering relieved, too.
0: Yes. Yes. Okay, well, Jen, let's get our bullet points for today's episode. What are we going to be hitting today?
1: Our featured topic is going to be Manna in the Wilderness, Part 2. Moving right into a research update on um, continuing with the Route of the Exodus and some very interesting brand new information there from Dr. Ardsma and a new article. Then we have a quote of note, um, an update on the truth in time ministry, a section again on the anti-aging vitamins, and a post that I wrote about many of the different customers that we have um, who take advantage of our supplement. And then Helen's view, giving her glimpse behind the scenes and talking about some of the things she's involved in on a daily basis. And that's it. Uh, As usual, we're packed with content, so we need to get right into it.
0: All right. Mana in the Wilderness, Part 2. Last month, we introduced the topic of the mana discovery. And this month, we are going to, in our Part 2 of this topic, give more of the specific details of mana which are pointed out by the biblical text. We're going to have discussion points in this particular podcast, talking about the melting point of manna, the taste of manna, how it was gathered and how it was used, how it kept the Israelites from starvation, and some, just some fascinating things today, uh, Jen, that we're going to go into. A matter of fact, we're calling them the fascinating facts that uh, we're going to hit here in just a second.
1: It's worth noting here, as we open this discussion again, that the weight of this discovery is really quite enormous for those in the halls of academia, those scholars um, who work on historical questions. And for so many years now and decades, really, since the 1950s um, or so, there's been an anti-God, anti-Bible trend in Universities and institutions of learning. The uh, historical accounts given in the Bible have been relegated, of course, just to mythology, a little bit of history, a lot of myth, a little bit of kernels of something that happened, but mostly just dramatization and mostly just some people who needed to make a history for themselves, invent something that they could rely on so they could have traditions. But nothing taken at face value as being simply historical and in that there's been a tremendous loss uh, for christianity for judaism for uh, western civilization and the consequences have been huge and for the first time the tables are now sharply turning and it's time for those who want to um, constantly say mythology to have to explain how something like this manna in the real world could possibly be mythology. And so it takes big ships a long time to turn around. And so we're talking about a harvest that we're seeing, you know, probably years down the road, but I'm going to give a little quote here from the dedication of the manna book. As we realize that This is a turning point, and things will probably never be the same. It says in the dedication of the book, Bread from Heaven, the Man of Mystery Solved, to all who would deny the historical accuracy of the biblical Exodus narrative. Checkmate.
0: And you can get that book. You can uh, order that book on thebiblicalchronologist.org. And I love that quote. Checkmate. Checkmate. That says
1: a lot in one word. Yes, it does. Um, game over? <laughs> I don't know. It's too soon to say game over. Of course. I mean, we like I said, this is a seed right. being planted, but we're trusting God for a great
0: harvest. Well, and it is. And it, just like Wilberforce, I mean, you know, and others, you know, these are these are new ideas. These are new truths. And... We don't expect that things are going to just happen overnight. It takes a long time, as you said, for big ships to turn around. And, you know, this culture is not in the mess that it's in for nothing. I think that it's, it can be a mistaken idea by many Christians today just to simply think, well, things are just getting worse because things just get worse. Well, not necessarily. <laughs> the uh, Bad ideas have bad consequences, and that's where we find ourselves. We were told many decades ago, that the Bible isn't actually true after all. Your mom and dad meant well. Grandpa and grandma meant well. Bless their hearts. But they were mistaken. We've now found out that these things aren't true. And and they have good reason for what they're saying in these Old Testament accounts especially. So I, I always want to try to point these things out because for so many years I didn't realize these things. I was just always a Bible believer. You know, you could have never convinced me that that the stories of the Old Testament uh, were false, and if anybody claimed they were false, they were just heathens that hated God, so there you go. But no, not necessarily true. We need to find these accounts in the real world if they're true stories, and that's why here is the Bible in real world history, real science, real Bible, real history, and real world, and this manna discovery is a slam dunk. I mean, it is a ball hit out of the park and checkmate. Well, let's get into it. Okay. We have some fascinating facts um, that we want to get into now today. Uh, Again, this is part two. Go back and listen to part one. If you haven't heard it, we're not going to do a lot of uh, review here today. Right. Last month, we
1: just laid all the foundation, explained a lot of things about the encampments, explained all kinds of related um, things that need to be understood to be able to understand the manna properly and understand how it was produced. And uh, we went into a couple of fascinating facts last month, which um, I must say, you know, I still find them to just be truly amazing. Go back and listen to that. And we are going to move on today into eight more fascinating facts. And these are just the details that are, you know, each of these details and matching them up with the sodium acetate trihydrate, (laughs) which is the biblical Manna. manna.
0: We better get started. So number one, which is actually number three, but anyhow, for today... Fascinating fact. Here we go. ...what the manna was compared to in the Bible. We're going to talk about how the Bible uh, describes manna, what it compares it to, and how that relates to this discovery. You can
1: imagine these Israelites going out and finding the manna on the ground for the first time, and then it's recorded in a couple different passages there. And of course... Humanly, we're going to want to take something that's unknown and compare it to something that we do know. This is like this, but it's not that, you know, but it seems sort of like it. And so, what does the Bible say? There's three different things that it says it was like.
0: Right. When the first one is, it says it was like hoarfrost, like f- the frost on the ground. Some of the um, uh, versions use the word hoarfrost, obviously similar to white flaky-like appearance. And as we talked about on our last podcast, we can hold this manna in our hands. We can uh, make this manna today uh, with the recipe that is given in the book. And this definitely has the appearance of a fine flake-like substance, like the frost on the ground, just like the Bible says. One of the versions say, when the dew was gone, the thin flakes like frost on the ground, appeared on the desert floor. And again, th- this is a result of, again, what we talked about in our last podcast, the efflorescence coming up through the soil through the in the night and appearing after the dew dries up, this fine flake-like substance.
1: The second comparison that we have in Exodus chapter uh, 16, verse 31, it says, The house of Israel named it manna, and it was like coriander seed, white. Now, how was it like coriander seed? On page 73 of the book, we can see a picture of coriander seed next to the um, manna substance. And we can see they don't look similar necessarily. But as we begin to understand how they used the manna, we can see the comparison to coriander seed. Coriander seed finds its most widespread use as an ingredient in diverse dishes, functioning to add flavor, bulk, and nutrition. You can't really eat coriander seed raw. I mean, you can, but it's much better uh, ground up and added in to food, dishes, flavor, bulk, nutrition. Um, And that is similar, very similar to the way that the Israelites would have used the manna. We'll talk more about that on our later points.
0: Right, and then the third description that we have in our English translations today is delium. In Numbers chapter 11, verse 7, the appearance like unto delium. Now, this one is a little harder for us to understand. There are no obvious similarities between manna and what we know of today as delium.
1: What is delium? Right. It's a hard substance. It looks similar to a hardened pine pitch that you would find on a pine tree. So it's hard to see an immediate similarity between the delium and the manna. There are a couple of different issues with that word. Um the Septuagint text does not say delium. It says hoarfrost instead. Again, right. And the delium appears in numbers 117 just in that one verse. So there could be a translation issue there. There's also the possibility that maybe the de- the uh manna on the ground on the desert floor was very shiny and sparkly in the sun and perhaps the delium in the sun would have also been very sparkly a
0: lustrous appearance as the yes. sun shone on it so right
1: right so we don't know exactly what that's referring to in the ancient text there's a couple of different possibilities there
0: right all right and now our second fascinating fact we're going to talk about the melting point of manna um let me read the verse out of the passage the bible says they gathered it morning by morning, every man as much as he should eat. But when the sun grew hot, it would melt. So
1: that's such a clue, you know, such a data point there. I mean, we don't know the temperature exactly, of course, but we know that this substance will melt under some type of desert heat Heat. environment and i know that dr arzma when he was in the lab working with the different uh sodium substances and candidates many of them didn't have melting points until up into 600 and some degrees. degrees and so obviously that's a falsifier i mean that's not going to be manna
0: well the candidate that appears to be manna has a melting point, the pure sodium acetate trihydrate of 136 degrees Fahrenheit. And again, as you said, this is actually a low melting point temperature for a sodium salt. Uh, manna that would have been gathered in the wilderness would not have been solely pure pure right. sodium acetate trihydrate. Um, but it would have been mixed with other elements from the desert soils. Dr. Arzma goes into all of this in the book, and that would have caused the melting point to decrease from the 136 degrees and causing this to pass this test of a melting point that is attainable in this hot region of the world.
1: Right. You know, ancient cultures, uh, they didn't have a way to measure temperature. Uh, Many times they didn't even have a sophisticated counting system of any sort. So knowing, okay, when the sun grew hot, it would melt. And then we have this sodium acetate trihydrate with a few um, trace substances mixed in, which we don't know exactly what those trace substances would have been, but Uh, they would have lowered the melting point. I believe Dr. Ardsma worked with a few things um, that were lowering the melting point down to 127 degrees. And so you can see that, you know, in a hot tent in the desert, uh, that temperature would have been definitely something that could have happened on a regular basis. And the manna inside would have melted. So there we have yet another confirmation of the, all of these different data points about the manna.
0: Right. Well, let's move on to our next one. Uh, we want to talk about what the Bible describes it as tasting like. On our last podcast, Jennifer and I actually had a packet of manna here with us. We don't have one today, unfortunately, um, but uh, we tasted it last time and gave you some information on that. But what does the Bible say that the manna tasted like? Well, in Exodus chapter 16, verse 31, it says the house of Israel named it manna and it was like coriander seed white and its taste was like wafers with honey, wafers with honey. And then in Numbers, what is that other passage?
1: Eleven, eight.
0: Numbers 11, verse 8. I'm looking it up now. It says this, the people would go about and gather it and grind it between two millstones or beat it in the mortar. And boil it in the pot and make cakes with it. And its taste was as the taste of cakes baked with oil. So we have two different descriptions here wafers with honey, cakes baked with oil.
1: Dr. Arsma says on page 58 of the book, I left the taste test to near the end of my investigations into manna for two reasons. The basic strategy demands that the most definitive test be given the highest priority. And he talks about people taste things differently. It's a little bit subjective. Um, And then, you know, the biblical record of the taste of manna, he says, is complex. Uh, Again, making the result less definitive. You have this um, wafers with honey, and then you have cakes baked with oil. And in fact, uh, one of the passages literally reads, juice of oil. Um, its taste was as the taste of juice of oil. So you have a sweetness, but also an oiliness described in the taste and possibly even the things that they were making with the manna would have maybe had the, this type of taste to it.
0: Right. When we've tasted it a number of times now, there is like the at first taste, there's a slight sweetness that's hard to explain, but it's there. And then, of course, what hits you is the saltiness. It's, it's, it's sodium, so it's very salty. But then it, there's an aftertaste. And it, and it was one of the first things that I, I can remember about tasting that for the first time, that there was this, it, the best way to describe it is oily. It leaves an oily aftertaste. So it's very, very much exactly as the scriptures describe it. In the book, uh, Dr. Arzma describes it this way. The initial sensation was of a brief, cool, mild sweetness reminiscent of artificial sweeteners. This was rapidly overwhelmed by a strong salty flavor, which I don't know how to describe. It was unpleasant in the same sense that taking a half a teaspoon of table salt would be. And then, most surprisingly, my mouth was left with a light aftertaste, or more precisely, a light after sensation of oil or fat. The sweet versus oil complexity of the biblical observations immediately clarified. Sodium acetate trihydrate elicited both sweet and oily taste sensations. And that's a great way to put it. The same experience that I had when I tasted it.
1: Right. And when you order your... Uh, sample packet of Dr. Ardsma's real manna, you can dip your finger in those um, fine flakes and taste it, and you can experience that same combination of flavors there. And don't dump the whole thing in your mouth. It is a very salty taste for a, a lot all at once, but getting a small amount and you can really taste those flavors.
0: And again, this provided calories for these people in the wilderness who needed. The calories. And we'll get into that again maybe in a minute. All right, fascinating fact number four how they divided up the manna. Exodus chapter 16, 16 and 18 says this This is what the Lord had commanded gather of it every man as much as he should eat. You shall take an omer apiece according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. The sons of Israel did so. Some gathered much and some little. When they measured it with an Omer, he who had gathered much had no excess, and he who had gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. Now, this can look to be saying that everybody miraculously just got the same amount every day, no matter how much or no matter how little that they gathered. But it's very possible and quite likely that the idea being conveyed here is that the manna was distributed equally to all the Israelite citizens by order of the leadership, specifically probably Moses. We know that the, the, the this encampment of all these people, this was a huge, huge endeavor. Uh, Moses must have had great leadership abilities and...
1: And also great trials in trying to
0: <laughs> deal with all of this. But Oh, my goodness. But even in this, you can see how the people were to gather what they would need for eating every day. And it does seem like that the gathering of the manna would have been carried out in an organized fashion.
1: Right. And they brought all of their harvest from their section right. into a central hub and it was given out. Here's Specific an omer for you, an um, omer for you. Right. And the harvest of the manna every morning would have varied depending on right. exactly the positioning of the flocks and the direction of the wind and that type of thing. So the
0: efflorescence. I would think have that's what it means. Variable. You know,
1: um, some gathered, what does it say? Yeah. Some gathered much and some little. Right. Uh, but when they measured it, they equally divided it. Right. So that's interesting to think about. That takes us right into the next fascinating fact, number five, how did they gather it? And how did they gather twice as much on Fridays? So first of all, they had to somehow get these fine flakes into piles in order to be able to be gathered up and brought in. One theory that seems likely as to how it would have been gathered would have been by fanning it, creating you know, a move an air movement that would have moved all those flakes into areas where they could be gathered up in piles. It really would have been a sight to behold. Yeah, my I, I can't imagine it, it
0: really. In my mind, I picture a a snow like a a snow covered field um, mm-hmm. where there's just these fine flakes. We can talk about hoarfrost. Mm-hmm. It could have looked very much like you would wake up in the morning on a winter day and see where through the night. There had been a very fine layer of snow come down on the ground, but it's not snow. And uh, the Israelites said, what is it, manna? And yeah, uh, a a great theory that they would have somehow figured out how to blow this stuff, fan it into piles. Um,
1: And then twice as much on Fridays, you know, how would that have worked? They were able to preserve it over the weekend, which we talked about last time. Um, But they So they brought in twice as much of a harvest on Friday, so they wouldn't have to gather it on the Sabbath. And it is, as we mentioned before, a recyclable product. Um, It will dissolve in the humidity if it's left on the ground, or it will melt in the hot sun and dissolve back down into the soil, and then be reproduced as manna the next morning. So even if there was something like 20%, 17% extra every day that was not gathered. And so that was being recycled down into the soil that would produce enough for a double harvest on Fridays. And it would basically build up a little bit each day, more and more extra until Friday rolled around, they gathered double the amount, and then it would begin again. So I I just find that Mm -hmm. incredible.
0: Yeah, and if you didn't listen to the first podcast about manna, you need to go back and listen about the weekend and how all that worked. It it is fascinating. Yes, very good. Well, let's keep going. Number six, how they used the manna. The Bible, again, describes, as we read a minute ago, it was like coriander seed. And we can take from that and other passages that it was used as a food ingredient quite likely, at least most of the time. When yeah, I mean, were Moses said, this. you
1: know, when you boil it in the pot, right. when you grind Blinded it in the, the mortar, mortar. Right. they um, were using it as a bulk. We We can't think you know that this was like salt and they just sprinkled it on their food for flavoring I mean this was providing calories which is going to be our next fascinating fact but it was a bulk I mean if they had some kind of broth some kind of liquid um, maybe trying to make a meat stew or something they were adding a lot of this manna to add calories into what they were eating and what that would have tasted like I really cannot wait to get enough manna um, <laughs> produced from the lab or somewhere that I can try to cook with. Yeah. Uh, because making bread with it or making a soup with it, boiling it in the pot, and how exactly would that have tasted? Well, and, you can imagine it's yeah. going
0: to be very salty, very, very salty tasting. And we have to remember, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but I want to go ahead and mention that really we have to get into our heads that these people were in. A, an emergency type of survival situation mode. survival yeah. they just needed calories to survive to get through this wilderness right to where the promised land the land flowing with milk and honey and you know they'll grow their gardens they'll have their they'll go back to regular life. Right. This was never intended to be something they were going to be eating for 40 years. Again, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get there in a minute. Yes. So, Fascinating
1: fact number 7. Yes. How did it keep them from starvation? Well, first of all, they were facing starvation because uh they're in the wilderness there was not much food supply, and they were on the move. I mean, even if they came across somewhere that they could purchase a whole bunch of supplies, they have to be able to transport those with them. Right. Um, and of course, finding supplies coming across caravans of merchants or whatever would have been rare, especially to provide for millions of people. And they did have their livestock. So they could have eaten some of those, but those were their capital. I mean, those were their livelihood and they were not going to eat that up and leave themselves with absolutely no industry going into the promised land. Although they would have had some cheese and milk and those types of things from the animals, but you know, just like grain and flour and stuff that you normally use to fill everybody up. Where are they going to get that
0: in the desert? Well, and what they need, again, like you said, is calories. And this is just so fascinating to me. This part of it, they all are. But if if you're familiar with health and calories and all of that, and maybe you've watched your calories in a diet or something, you would know that the RDI or the reference daily intake for food calories in the United States is... 2,000 calories for women and 2,600 calories for men. That's what an average man and an average woman need each day in their diet. Now, the Bible says that an omer of manna was distributed for each person. Our best understanding of an omer is roughly 3.64 liters. And that's quite a bit. But Every day. Every day. But here's what, and and again, you can read it in the book, Dr. Ardsma, in his research, shares with us that this manna, one omer of manna, would provide 2,100 calories (laughs) per day, per person. That's remarkable that an omer of synthetic manna, what we can make today... In the kitchen, in the laboratory, turns out to supply the right amount of food calories needed for the Israelites to survive. Now, yeah, uh, I know. L- let me read you something from Dr. Arzma's book. This provides independent corroboration of the validity of the manna recipe, which this new scientific analysis of the biblical record has deduced. More than this, it once again strongly confirms the historicity of the manna narrative. What did any ancient writer understand about food calories? These have been worked out by scientists only in the last 200 years. And yet we find that an omer of manna provides a day's worth of food calories. Not two days worth, not two weeks worth, not two minutes worth, not two hours worth. For anybody making this story up, there's a broad range of wrong outcomes and only a narrow range for the right outcome. And yet the narrative has the right outcome thereby rendering untenable any other assessment of these ancient records that they are simply factually historical. That's fascinating.
1: Yes, it really is. I can't stress how fascinating (laughs) that
0: is. I mean, this isn't going to happen by chance.
1: 2,000 calories a day. Yep, And that's what Moses was portioning out for them or the delegates of Moses there in the distribution of the manna. Now we got to go to fascinating fact number eight and I don't care for this fact um, because it's quite weighty. It is weighty. You know, when, when I first started understanding that manna appeared to be a sodium, sodium acetate trihydrate and you taste it and it's salty, but oily and, and sweet and all of that. And you think about eating that bulk of it every day and Knowing what we know today about sodium being bad for you, your mind immediately begins to think, "Well, if they would have eaten that in the wilderness for that many years, they all would have died.
0: Yep. and they what did happened? right
1: they all died.
0: It is a weighty point, but what we have to do, as we always have to do, is take god's word for what it says, take god 's world for what it is showing us. And when we find the truth, we don't always like it, but it can teach us things about God and about who God is, how God works, how God judges. We learn so many things in life and in God's word and God's word about how good he is, how loving, how kind. But we also learn about God as judge. God can take bad things and turn them into good things, and God can take good things. And in, in through our rebellion and desire to do our own thing and through our cowardice and fear and grumbling and complaining, he can turn good things into bad things.
1: Yes. Manna was the true solution for the Israelites for their need for food and calories, but it was only intended to be short-term. Because they were supposed to be entering the promised land uh, at the most within a few years of the Exodus, the passage through the wilderness from Egypt to Canaan was supposed to be brief. Right. That was God's original plan for them. But instead, they fell into fear and complaining uh, to the point where God judged that generation and delayed their entrance to the promised land for 40 years. And within that 40 years, everybody aged 20 and up died. And it's just a staggering thought to think that the bread from heaven, the manna that God provided for them miraculously, what is it, was a miracle provision for them, and then it turned into God's judgment on them after they consumed it uh, for such a long time. And all of that sodium... Wreaked havoc in their bodies, as we know it would do today—heart attacks and all the things that can come from that.
0: Sure, does make sense that that is what has transpired in the story. What what happened? Let me read the account in Numbers chapter fourteen of this judgment from God. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, "How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me?" I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to settle you, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you said would become a prey, I will bring them in, and they will know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Your sons shall be shepherds for forty years in the wilderness, and they will suffer for your unfaithfulness. Until your corpses lie in the wilderness, according to the number of days which you spied out the land, forty days, for every day you shall bear your guilt a year, even forty years, and you will know my opposition. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be destroyed, and there they will die. Have you ever wondered? When hearing this story or thinking on the story, how, and, and you've already explained it, how all these men or people, it specifically says men, from 20 years old and up would have died in the wilderness within 40 years. And, I never
1: even thought about that until this whole manna thing was right. brought to light. You just think, well, God judged them and they all died.
0: Until they died off. But I mean, that's well, the real world part. Well, think about it. Yeah. You, you know, you're, you're 20 years old, 40 years, you're only 60. Right. And it's not like some of them made it for the full 40 years. So 60 year olds don't just normally die off. Right. Or if you're 21, you're 61. If you're 23, you're 60.
1: And they died by that time. By they that may time. have died
0: sooner. So the very reasonable answer after understanding the manna discovery is that the heavy amount of sodium intake would have contributed to this judgment from God. Long-term consumption of excess sodium is known to elevate the risk of chronic disease. Manna consumed by the Israelites would have resulted in sodium-level intakes, now get this, around 260 times larger than what is considered to be adequate sodium intake. As we know today, that kind of sodium intake over a long period of time will lead to chronic heart-related disease, or what we call cardiovascular disease. Now, sodium isn't toxic. Again, Dr. Arsma goes into all of this. You're not going to get poisoned by, by sodium. It's, there's calories there, but long-term.
1: Especially that amount of an <laughs> overload in their diet right. regularly. Like I said, I mean, this is the real world and real world can be really exciting. It can also be very, very heavy when we come face to face with the fact, with the knowledge that um, God just didn't strike them dead by some, you know, miraculous unknown thing. But in fact, it was a sodium overload in the diet from the manna. I just, even to this day, I mean, for one thing, an application comes home uh, very Quickly close to home, of complaining and doubting God and not trusting his promises and not boldly going forward when he has uh, told us what we need to do. And instead, we doubt and we question and we complain. It was the complaining and the evil report of the spies that led to this.
0: Dr. Arzma points that out in the book again that if the spies who went into that land had not given that evil report, the manna. Or the excess sodium intake would have ceased right then and there.
1: When they came to the edge of the promised land and took possession of it, they would not have had to eat manna anymore.
0: The Bible says when they entered the promised land, the manna ceased. And we know why from science. We understand.
1: So I think that's the most unexpected thing that comes out of this whole manna discussion. And it took me you know, a number of weeks and months of processing and thinking through this to realize how to think about all of this and understand it in a, in this new light, but still it matches the biblical account. Uh, The data that we are given is explained point by point by point with um, this discovery of how manna would happen in the real world.
0: This discovery is an uninventable concept. It is a bomb that has fallen in academia. I do believe and it may take it may take some time but things are never going to be the same as the word about this gets out we said at the beginning of this discussion it takes a long time for big ships to turn around but seeds are being planted I hope you all listening to this podcast will help us get the message out some people that hear these things won't like what they're hearing for for whatever reason some will reject it because it goes against everything they've always believed. They've already got their paradigm made up. They, they know what they think. Some will reject it because it doesn't go with what they've always thought. But the truth of the matter is, this, this, is either, this is either true or it's not, and it doesn't take a scientist to see the obvious that is sitting here in front of us. Right. If you have that many people with that many animals in that part of the world, and science can show us, arranged in the way that they were arranged, that you could, if you could recreate that scenario today, that tomorrow morning, if you could recreate that scenario tonight, tomorrow morning you would wake up with fine flake-like things that look like hoarfrost all over the ground that can supply... 2,000 calories that's providing per calories. person right. in an omer.
1: That can be gathered up, that's going to melt if, in, in excessive if, heat. If yes. this
0: is true, then there is no, there is no more argument. It, that is what the Bible is describing. As Dr. Arsman said, what did ancient writers know about an omer of manna that supplies that many calories? I mean, mm-hmm. this is just obvious. So if it doesn't going- matter if someone likes it or not. It doesn't matter if it agrees with my paradigm. It's either true or it isn't. And the word needs to get out.
1: Right. Um, if somebody's going to make up a fairy tale, they will never make something up that's going to be able to be explained in the real world right. like this. And, you know, my mind goes back to the William Wilberforce discussion at the beginning because it does take courage to get on board with something that is previously unknown or seems kind of unusual or strange. And you have all of those British politicians who didn't even show up for the vote because they just didn't want to put themselves on the line like that. They didn't want to put their reputation at stake, that they were going along with somebody with such far-fetched ideas and who wanted to overturn um, the British way of life. So we have to face that as well. You know, am I going to be the guy that doesn't show up for the vote? Or am I going to boldly be able to help move forward um, some ideas that are going to have far, far reaching
0: consequences? That's right. And one of the things that caused the Israelites to get into the situation they got in was fear. They didn't have the courage to stand up and go do what God said or accept the reality that God had brought them to. And it
1: wasn't what they thought. You know, I think they were ready probably the night they left Egypt. They were ready, like promised land. Right. We're there. Tomorrow morning we're there. Right. And instead, God took them to Sinai. God took them to Rephidim where they didn't have water. This is the way God, God took always them works. um to a battle with the Amalekites that they weren't ready for. They they weren't expecting. And so after those chain of events, well, this isn't what we thought. Well then this whole thing of going up into the promised land, forget it. We'll go back to Egypt. Because all of our children are going to die here in the wilderness. And so because it wasn't what they thought, it wasn't what they had expected, then they faltered on believing God. And we can do the exact same thing today. Well, certainly I would never have thought it would be that. Right.
0: Yes. Right. Well, we do hope that you will help us spread this word, spread this message. It's very exciting. And it turns the tables, as we said a little bit ago. It's the first time the tables have been sharply turned like this. Our desire, our heart, and our desire here is that people just simply see the truth, whatever the truth is, that you see it, that these stories are real. This God is very real. Um, this culture in trouble that we presently live in, and we need to understand who God is, what he's like, how he works. And um, we have some real world stuff here, folks, that I hope that you will take advantage of. Maybe you have a young person in your life. Maybe maybe somebody's been to college and some professor has talked them out of uh, what's true. This is stuff you can share with them. This is stuff for the atheists. This is stuff for for anybody who's doubting the reality, the validity of the scriptures.
1: Well, hey, thanks for following along with us on this two part discussion about the yeah. manna in the wilderness. And again, uh, you can definitely get the book, get a packet of manna with the book. You can read it all in detail, see all of the illustrations and the um, different artwork, tables, um, photos there, and the explanation of the path of discovery uh, that Dr. Arzma went down with this. And then you can have that packet of manna, hold that in your hand, experience it just the way the Israelites did. And what a unique thing to hand to somebody. What a unique piece of literature for your library uh even a great gift idea as uh, christmas is coming up here and something that you can be sure nobody else is going to get <laughs> for christmas uh they won't duplicate we, your gift
0: we do offer some <laughs> unique gifts around here yeah, you got right? we gotta get the prize for that <laughs> all right let's do our research update here the location of mount Horror. Dr. Ardzma has written his latest article, The Route of the Exodus, Part 7, The Location of Mount Hor. Seven of the eleven stops from Egypt to Sinai in the Route of the Exodus have now been identified. Succoth, Etham, Pihahirath, Mara, Rephidim, Elam, and Sinai itself, which is Mount Yeraham. After Sinai, the Israelites lived in a place the Bible calls Kadesh Barnea for multiple decades. They spent most of the time in their wilderness wanderings in this place called Kadesh Barnea, which has been identified. After Kadesh Barnea, the Israelites camped at Mount Hor, a place the Bible calls Mount Hor, for 30 days. And it was at this mountain. You may, uh, if you know the story uh, and familiar with Mount Hor, this is where Aaron died and was buried. This newest research article from Dr. Ardsma identifies this location, and thereby yet another puzzle piece falls right into place, understanding the route of the Exodus. The biblical text comes to life in new ways now that we know exactly where these events happened, where they took place. Due to the missing millennium discovery, these locations have now been identified. I encourage you to go to the website, get the newsletter or uh, the show notes. There's a link there. You can get Dr. Arzma's na- latest newsletter, The Route of the Exodus, Part 7, The Location of Mount Hor.
1: There's a word used in the text there in the Old Testament that nobody's really ever been able to understand what it means. I believe the word is "atharim," And Now, knowing what mountain this is, Mount Hor, and the unique uh, features of that mountain, a very interesting explanation comes to light for what that word could have meant in that ancient text and what most likely it did mean as you read the story and understand the events that took place there.
0: Yes, and we'll be talking more about this in a future podcast. We have our quote of note today. Jennifer, you want to give us our quote
1: quote of note. This is from uh, an individual on social media g f are the initials, and this person says very candidly, "I have tried for probably eight years to believe I've read the Bible and gone to church, but the fantasy like adventures, my lack of faith, belief without evidence, and the fact Egyptian history in the Bible is very wrong makes it hard." Do you know of any way I can prove it to myself? This was a young lady asking this question, presumably a college age young lady. And we replied to her, gave her um, some links and information, as many other people were also trying to do to offer her their insight to her question. Um, But don't know what came of that. Don't know if she was able to avail herself of what we were offering her But there we hear somebody who's really seeking for some answers. They don't really want to let go of their faith, but they just can't quite anchor it down uh, the way they would like to be able to. And do you know of any way I can prove it to myself? Of course, faith always comes into play, but God gives us the evidence we seek. And I sure do wish we could sit down with this young lady, talk to her about manna, talk to her about Mount Hor, talk to her about the Exodus in the real world, real world history. And we just pray that God will reach her with the answers she's looking for.
0: Yes. Yeah, Amen to that. Let's talk about our truth in time update this month. The truth in time ministry is myself, Uh, and my wife here, Jennifer, and our children. And we schedule in meetings, come into churches, usually it's churches or other special events that are taking place. We are really wanting and would love to get into some college type of venues, speaking to young people about these discoveries. We are now scheduling uh, for 2024. We sing, we present the Bible in real world history. Some of the same things we talk about here on the podcast. Different format, of course, when we're speaking in front of people. But uh, we speak on these same topics we're available to. And of course, we do love to sing together with our family. You can go to truthintime.org and see some of our itineraries, see a little bit of a picture of who we are and what we do.
1: We're out a good bit this fall, pretty much all that we can handle with our busy family and everything. And we would love to get you scheduled in for 2024. The public speaking ministry and music ministry is called Truth in Time. And we had something interesting happen with um, our music ministry our Two of our daughters recorded a song and we put it on our little family music channel on YouTube and it took off in the algorithm there. These two girls that are 10 and 8 years old singing Are You Washed in the Blood uh, <laughs> has gone out to over 300,000 people on YouTube and yep. we're praying that God'll use that to open more doors for the Truth in Time ministry to come in and present music and sessions. Well,
0: that's right. on the Bible in yes. the
1: real world. And I did want to give a quick update too because Truth in Time in the future is going to be offering tours to Israel. We've discussed this, all these locations now, even including Mount Hor, which unfortunately is not within the bounds of modern day Israel. But as many of these sites as we can possibly visit and tour, brand new, you know, Route of the Exodus tour is going to be happening with Truth in Time. But some months ago we told our listeners that I was having to get my American citizenship in order to travel on a U.S. passport with Steve. And we explained all of that. So I will say that here, as we record this, in the coming week, I will be doing step three of my citizenship process. Step three. It's happening. It's moving along.
0: Yes, it is. Our next section on the podcast today is our anti-aging uh, section. I want to tie this into the Mana discovery that we talked about a minute ago Because it's important for people to understand and realize that the same science Bible method that went into the discovery of manna is the same method that has gone into the discovery of the vitamins. As significant as this manna discovery is, it is of utmost importance that people are made aware of the discoveries that have happened here in the field of aging and that people take appropriate action for themselves and for their loved ones. We now know how it all worked, the manna in the wilderness. Dr. Arzma spent a year in the research lab solving that mystery. We also know how it worked that men and women and boys and girls were living the ages described in the early part of the book of Genesis Dr. Arzma has spent decades in the lab solving the mystery of the lifespans, and and really, this is what drove him, uh, Jen, to discover the manna, and pushed him because he's trying to find a way. Just to be very candid and very honest, trying to find a way to open people's minds, and help them to understand that what's over here, though it might sound fantastical and even crazy at times, it is based on a solid Bible science method. A research method that brings about real results in the real world. That's right. And Jennifer, you wrote a post just recently and put it on social media that was really good about the putting the gold back in those golden years. Is that what it was?
1: Well, what? yes. Uh, the Dr. Ardsma's Vitamins is an uh, account we have on Facebook and Instagram if you'd like to join us there. And, um, I shared a graphic, a picture there with a sign with lettering on it. And it said, good news made it to my golden years, bad news, ain't no gold. So that's a cute little thing. You can put a laughing reaction on that, but I did write this post. It says, put some gold back in those golden years, I could tell you about two men in their 80s still actively farming. I could tell you about a man in his 70s building his own house. I could tell you about a woman in her 80s who organized and planned a family activity in her local church. Oh, and she made all the food for it as well. I could tell you about an 80-year-old man still not retired from the local merchant where he has worked for most of his life. I could tell you about a woman in her upper 60s, actively running a shipping business. I could tell you about a man in his early 70s, still pastoring. I could tell you about a couple in their mid to late 80s, thrilled to still be living on their own, healthy and active. I could tell you about an evangelist and his wife, both in their late 60s, who energetically keep up with a busy travel and ministry schedule, both in the U.S. and overseas. I could tell you about a man who is healthy, trim, and active in his upper 70s, a leukemia survivor. I could tell you about a 75-year-old lady who calls me from time to time just to chat, says the sores on her arms are healing up, raves about how great she's feeling, hopes to get into her own house soon where she can get a dog, has been writing songs, and wants to get a better guitar. I could tell you about a 69-year-old woman whose fingers have straightened out after having painful, debilitating arthritis. These are all real people. These and many more are my, quote, customers, unquote. I am so privileged to work on the customer side of the anti-aging vitamins. Do we have clinical studies to, quote, prove that these folks are doing well because of the newly discovered anti-aging vitamins? No, nothing official yet, but I would rather see real life people than read about some study somewhere. Anyhow, I am so glad I get to see them answer their calls and questions and help them place orders. Yes, they are my why. Very good. At the bottom, I have two asterisks. Do I always get glowing reports and never hear of my customers struggling or having health difficulties? No, sometimes even serious health issues can pop up. This thing of aging is no joke. But I can honestly say that those kind of reports from customers are few and far between. And the second note is don't mistakenly think that the anti-aging vitamins are just for older folks. They are needed by everyone. Invest now for your golden years, no matter your age. And who knows what those golden years might actually end up looking like.
0: Yes, and the research on the anti aging vitamins continues. Great progress has been made. The third edition of Aging Cause and Cure has just been finalized, just like this last week. And we are getting ready to um, get that printed and put out in publication. And again, great strides have been made, and we are just praying that the Lord can help us get the word out about these things.
1: And are thrilled to see the difference that it's making in real people's lives, Yes, as I shared there in that post some some of the many examples.
0: All right, the next thing on our agenda here is Helen's view. And Helen will now share a little bit more about the background of things that go on around here. Uh, This one is called A Day in My Life. A Day in My Life.
2: I get up sometime between 6.30 and 7 a.m. I open up the big doors of the ARP campus building, both front and back, and let the breeze go through the building. I walk around the property, just relaxing and praying before I deal with the many emails and orders. Breakfast consists of four tablespoons of orange juice mixed with two cups of water, two tablespoons of homemade peanut butter, and half a banana. I read a few verses from Proverbs while I eat frozen turkey burger, lunch, and frozen homemade asparagus soup, supper, are set out to defrost. We have our big meal at noon every day. Checking my business emails and collecting my online orders is my next task. Orders are sent to the shipping room for filling. Caleb arrives around 7 a.m. I talk to him about the weed whacking that needs to be done and also moving some heavy boards for me. Caleb also has his list from Gerald, so he is set for his work day. My student employee arrives at seven thirty a.m. I work with our local high school and have senior students come to work at MLF as part of their business class. I mentor them in everything small business as well as character development. Some of them are real characters. The students get paid for their work and for many students this is their first job. They get graded by me and the grades go into the school as part of their grades for the year. I love working with the students and enjoy helping them get launched. I work with my student for three and a half hours every morning. This morning we were working on filling some products from Mulberry Lane Farm, putting them in boxes and getting them ready to put on pallets. Four pallets weighing 1,500 pounds each will go out this week. Mid-morning a semi-truck arrives and Caleb helps me get two full pallets out to the truck for pickup. At 11 a.m., I check all my emails and print off more orders that have come in. I fill those orders so they can go out in the mail after lunch. I check my garden and flowers and water where needed. I pick some tomatoes, cucumbers, and green peppers for my salad for lunch. I start lunch drinking another large glass of my orange juice water drink while I make lunch. It is shepherd's pie for lunch using our garden potatoes and our garden corn. Yummy. Whatever dishes have accumulated get washed. The rest soak in the sinks to do later. Candied peanuts have been cooking on the stove top to be used for snacks. They get stored in mason jars. A nice treat with a little added protein. Gerald and I chat about various things during lunch, very efficient business meetings, and then sit outside in the fall sun to relax for a few minutes before heading out to our afternoon activities. At 12.30pm, Caleb and I work in the shipping room and wrap two pallets to get ready for pickup. He also helps me for about an hour bagging up organic soybeans to put in the storage rooms for sending out later. I enjoy the conversation as we work. Today we were brainstorming some new Mulberry Lane Farm business ideas, which will probably commence in the summer of 2025. Stay tuned. Caleb heads off to work on constructing a very large shed with Gerald in the backyard. The afternoon activities include answering emails, opening incoming mail and parcels, making phone calls, ordering supplies, and paying bills. A semi-truck delivery arrives and Caleb helps me unload the pallets. A quick run into Paxton, four miles from us, is necessary to pick up something from the drugstore and then a drop-off at the bank. I stop at our local thrift shop in Paxton for a bit of fun. Simple pleasure that saves me money, and all the money from the thrift store gets turned back into the Paxton community. A win for all. My grandson Sam arrives with the pumpkins and gourds I ordered from him. They are gorgeous. I'm so proud of him and his garden crop. I set up four potted mums in front of the school, as well as the pumpkins and gourds. We chat about football for a bit, and then he is off to practice. I save checking my social media for later in the afternoon and then make a short post. This is a little break in a work-filled day. See my social media links below if you want to follow along on my journey. Checking the news is next, just to make sure the world is still in the same mess it was a week ago. It is. I don't linger. It is too depressing. Around 4 p.m. it is time to get Gerald's yeast pancakes going by making the oat milk and getting the pancakes to rise. More dishes that have been soaking now get washed. Company coming for dinner on Sunday evening, so I run the robotic vacuum cleaner for the entire apartment, then head outside to do some badly needed weeding in the flower beds. What is a day without mouse chores? Down to the basement to take care of those little critters, empty trash, sweep floors and bleach mouse cages and bottles. This is my least favorite part of the day, but I remind myself that this is good character development. On the way to the basement, I grab a large broom and sweep one hallway. These are long hallways. On the way back, another hallway gets swept. Today is trash day, so all the trash goes into the dumpster for tomorrow's pickup. As I empty the employee bathroom garbage, I see that the bathroom needs cleaning. Oh dear, it must be done now. Supper is at 5.30 and I make Gerald's pancakes. I eat up yesterday's leftovers, chicken, mashed potatoes, and gravy. Now that the days are getting shorter, we need to get out earlier to take our daily two-mile walk. We head out into the country around 6 p.m. and enjoy the serenity and calm of the country two blocks from us. We never run out of things to talk about. This is my favorite part of the day. The walks have been so wonderful with the cooler evenings now coming on. At 7.30 p.m., I wash up the rest of the dishes. I'm tired at this point and it takes every bit of energy to finish cleaning the kitchen. Listening to some fast-paced music spurs me on. I pour a bath in our double tub. How we enjoy this relaxing and refreshing time. Putting this double tub in was the best thing we did when we built our apartment. One feels the stress just melt away. We head to the bedroom between 8 and 8.30 p.m. I read to Gerald while he eats his evening popcorn. We are currently reading a six-volume set of books by Winston Churchill on World War II. What a brilliant man he was. He has a way with words that beats all. I'm learning a ton about geography. Where in the world is Lithuania? I have a globe in my bedroom. I love learning about world politics. It is sobering to contemplate the evil in the heart of man. Around 9 p.m. or so, we watch something online. We are currently going through Perry Mason's old TV series from the 1950s, not to be confused with the new Perry Mason from 2020. By 10 p.m., I'm falling asleep and wake up around 10.30 when it's time to go to bed and then ask Gerald, what did I miss? He has the patience of Job. I turn on the noisemaker, the air conditioner, the fan, and hit the hay. Sometimes I wake up during the night and can't sleep. All of my problems that are just molehills turn into mountains. I simply put on my headband headphones and listen to a talk or sermon until I go back to sleep. I'm currently listening to Jerry Bridges on discipleshiplibrary.com. And so ends another day in my life. Every day is different. Every day the same. Every day a gift. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12. Thanks for listening in. I enjoyed writing this up for you and I hope it's a blessing to you.
1: Always interesting to hear from my mom, Helen, and I will say, go to the show notes, look at the link there for Mulberry Lane Farms, mulberrylanefarm.com. You can purchase some of the many organic supplies and our family loves and recommends the steel cut oats from yes. Mulberry Lane Farms. They make a delicious and very healthy breakfast, very easy to prepare. There and you. as you make a purchase there, you are helping to support the um, work that goes on here at Artsma Research and Publishing. So we hope you have a great harvest season. This is October. Next time we'll be together will be November. That's hard to believe. And it's a beautiful time of year here in Illinois as the harvest begins to come in and all the fields turn golden. The soybeans are looking gorgeous. A beautiful golden carpet getting ready to be harvested and brought in here at this time of year.
0: Yes, there's only two episodes left in 2023 of the podcast and as promised in our January podcast, we plan to address a hot topic in Christian circles this year: the age of the Earth.
1: Yes, we promised that. I think in January, right? That, That's right. You, that
0: we would hit it before we, the we end were of the going year. to get to it this year. So, so we are running out we're of time. Try to keep that promise, right? And uh, we may hit it next month. We may not. We're not for sure. It'll yet. be either
1: November, or December. You can be assured of that we'll That's do our right. very best uh, to address that age of the Earth
0: topic. Don't miss a podcast. Hey, we'll see you next month.
1: Thanks for joining us as we seek to labor here at the Biblical Chronologist for the Lord of the Harvest.